Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Follow Him. My name is Hank Smith. I'm your host. I'm here with my graceful co-host, John, by the way. Welcome, John. (laughs) Not only is it a new episode, it is a new season of Follow Him. It is. And I'm I'm here with Hank. I'm going to give Hank a middle name uh, this year. Hank Kilowatt Smith because of his boundless energy. Boundless energy. <laughs> Boundless energy. Sometimes in Springville, when they have power problems, they just hook jumper cables to Hank's ears and he lights up most of the city. 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> John, new year, new season, new book of scripture. This is exciting. Um, so we had to bring in the best of the best. Who's with us today? Like you said, new year. I think that uh, I think a lot of us would love a better understanding, appreciation, would love to grow a greater love for the Old Testament. So I'm so glad we're doing this, and we're starting with uh, Dr. Kerry Muelstein. We're so excited to have him. I have such an extensive bio that uh, on Dr. Muelstein, so I'm going to skip around, but I hope I don't miss anything uh, that you can put in. But as I was reading it, you know what I kept thinking, Hank? I kept hearing da-da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da, whenever I saw the word <laughs> Egypt. So, let's see. Kerry received his uh, bachelor's from BYU in psychology with a Hebrew minor. As an undergraduate, he spent time at the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies in the Intensive Hebrew Program, received an MA in Ancient Near Eastern Studies from BYU, and a PhD from UCLA in Egyptology. That's where I hear the music. Da-da-da-da. He also taught early morning seminary at the Westwood uh, Institute of Religion, which is uh, uh, there by UCLA. He was selected by the Princeton Review in 2012 as one of the best 300 professors in the nation. He and his wife, Julianne, are the parents of six children. He's also served on a committee for the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities and currently serves on their board of trustees. He's a senior fellow of the William F. Albright Institute for Archaeological Research. He's the director of the BYU Egypt Excavation Project in association with his works on understanding the pyramid excavated there, as well as the Greco-Roman culture represented at the site in the advent of Christianity in Egypt. I've always just loved ancient Egypt and their their art especially. And so we're really excited to have you to bring in kind of some Egyptian uh, backdrop to all these things that we're, we're looking at today. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. Ah, thank, thank you. I, I almost fell asleep while you were reading that boring <laughs> stuff, but now, now I'm awake again. So it's, it's good to be with you guys. Carrie, I hear some people say that the Old Testament is their favorite book. I hear others say, I just don't know how to, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know where to start. I don't understand how the Pearl of Great Price fits in. Where does Moses Abraham fit in with Genesis? I don't get all this. Can you kind of give us a, a, an Old Testament for dummies kind of introduction and say, how, how, do we, how do we start this whole year, new year of study in the Old Testament? Yeah, I would I would love to. I am so excited about having an Old Testament year. Uh, I've been looking forward to this since we started Come Follow Me. Uh, I do feel like with Come Follow Me, people have really gotten into whatever book of Scripture we're studying. And so I've been waiting for this year where we can really help people. Um, because I think you're right, there are like one and a half percent of us that say we love the Old Testament. <laughs> And uh, 98.5% who say, I'd like to love the Old Testament, but it's just hard. Uh, so, uh, But I think there are some things that really can help you understand it better. Uh, there are a couple of keys uh, that, in fact, one day I want to write a book, uh, 10 Keys to Understanding the Old Testament. But we won't do all 10 here. That would take too long. But let me give you just a couple of ideas. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think we have to be willing to admit that it's a different culture. And sometimes we struggle just because we want them to be like us and act like us. Now, in a lot of ways, they are like us. Their, their desires are the same. Um, the, the things that they uh, love, the things that they're afraid of, those are the same kind of things. They're humans just like us, right? But they, they dress differently. They have different ways of talking. And then we have the King James Version, which has a different way of talking. Um, but probably one of the bigger things is 
that uh, the Old Testament is more willing to record warts and all than probably any of our other books of Scripture. Right. They're just it's a culture that's just going to lay it all out there. Uh, they're not going to hide stuff. And, and I actually love that. But um, but for some people, they struggle partially because they they kind of have come to expect that whatever they're reading about characters in, in the Old Testament, it must be good and inspired. And the Old Testament is not giving you only the good stuff. They're giving you everything. So I, I met someone once who said, well, I was reading the Old Testament, but I had to stop when we got to the book of Judges because I, I was reading some stories about some terrible stuff. And I thought, well, that's, I just can't believe that's how we're supposed to act. And in fact, I think it was recorded as an example of a really bad way to act, right? right. They're telling you, this is when we hit our low part. This is, this is when we were at our worst and, 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 and they're sharing it with us. Or for example... Uh, you know, here as we start, we're going to get uh, really quickly into the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and their families. And uh, you know what? They have messy family situations. They go through tough stuff. It's really messy. And I appreciate that because most of us, however wonderful our families are, there's some messiness in it. Right. There are there are brothers who want to sell other brothers in most families. Um, <laughs> there are there are some things that are kind of tricky to work through and they're not hiding it. They're saying, you know what? Jacob is one of the most righteous people that ever lived, and he had some tough stuff in his family, and sometimes he couldn't figure out exactly how to do it right, and Isaac couldn't either, and so on. So uh, I, I think we just have to say, instead of expecting to see a perfect, pristine situation, let's say, ah, oh, these guys uh, had difficult lives, and, and we do too, and, and then I think we can actually relate better to them and get more out of it. I've heard it said, Kerry, that uh, I think it Hartley says the past is a foreign country. They do things yeah. differently there. So we need to maybe approach the past, the Old Testament, in the same way we'd approach going to a foreign country. We'd probably watch and learn and be respectful and, uh, you know, instead of judgmental. I think that's a, that's a great approach. And I love that that quote. Um, and so that brings us back into this cultural thing. So maybe I'll just give you um, two other things that I think are key for understanding the Old Testament. And one of them is very much cultural. Um, culturally, they are much more symbol-oriented than we are. Um, and so they're going to rely on symbols a lot. Um, and it will be their, their primary and most important way of communicating. So when I say that, we think, oh, symbol like uh, a pyramid, right? Of course, I think that because I'm an Egyptologist. But, you know, different kinds of symbols. And it is that. But I would say even more than that, the most important method of communicating for them, the, thing, the way they communicated the most important things, let's say, is by symbolic action. Everything has to have a symbolic action. So that's why you're going to read, you know, that they, they rent or they tore their clothes. Because if you're feeling torn up inside, then there needs to be a symbolic expression of that. You tear your clothes. Um, and, and we're going to see God communicating with them in this way. Right. I, I think that when it says that God will communicate to us in our language and according to our understanding, that part of that is not just whether it's English or Portuguese. It's uh, it's that. If we expect for him to communicate to us in dreams, if we expect him to communicate to us in symbolic actions, that's what he's going to do. So just as an example, um, the Exodus, I, I think that that really happened. It's a literal story. It really happened. But it happened in a way that is designed to teach us symbolically. Or the sacrifices they're given are designed to teach us symbolically. Or later when we get to stories like um, Miriam being um, stricken with leprosy, are designed to teach us symbolically. But the other thing, actually, so I said I was going to give you two more, but I've got to give you three more things. So okay. the other thing to tie in with A this bonus. symbolism. Yeah. Uh, well, it's because it's, it's, they're, they're, they're tied together. The, this um, you know, symbolic action that God speaks with, we need to look for the whole story. Um, too often we look for the, the first part and we miss the second part. So I personally feel like the the Old Testament t teaches more about God's mercy and his love than any other book of Scripture, hands down easily, more than any other book of Scripture. But I know that's not how most people see it, but it's because they, they look at just one part. So, for example, with that story with, with Miriam, she and Aaron come and they they question Moses about his authority, and uh, and that's something that, that's, that's challenging Moses' uh, position as the prophet. So it's not enough for Moses to say something about that in this culture. In this culture, there has to be a symbolic action that answers it. So the symbolic action is that Miriam is struck with leprosy. 
And if we stop there and we say, wow, that's pretty harsh, then that's one thing. But if we keep reading, well, the next thing is Miriam is healed, but then she has to go through the ritual cleansing that's part of the law of Moses. And that's going to take a week before she can be cleansed and be part of the, be in with everyone again around uh, the rest of Israel because of leprosy, you're supposed to be away from people. So God has Israel wait. They just wait when Miriam's cleansed and ready to go. Now they can move again. And if you think of the symbolism of that, that you and I will all do things that, that aren't what we should do. And yeah, God may have to punish us for that. He may have to humble us. That's really what it is, is teaching and humbling. That's what happened there, is teaching and humbling, and that's what God does. But God will cleanse us from that. He'll wait for us as long as is necessary, and then we can move along again. Uh, and, and it's no big deal. In the end, that was no big deal that Miriam did that. She just had to go through the learning process. God takes care of it. She's cleansed. Let's, let's move on. That happens for all of us spiritually. And if we're willing to look at those symbols in the whole story, right? So another example, this is a much bigger scale, but the same thing. Scattering uh, the destruction of the kingdom of Israel and the scattering of the 10 tribes. That sounds like pretty harsh stuff, right? But again, it's God trying to humble them and teach them. Let's keep in mind, he's still gathering them. He's not, this is a 2,500 year cycle. If we want to learn about God's patience, that's patience. But it doesn't matter how wicked they were, God's still going to work with them. He's still going to bring them back to him. That's the great message of the Old Testament is it doesn't matter how many times or in how badly you mess up. God is always there. He'll humble you and teach you, but he's always there to accept you back, bring you back in and give you another chance. And if we'll look for those messages, in the Old Testament, you know, like messages of the prophets are filled with all sorts of warnings and wrath and stuff. But if you look, almost all of them end with this beautiful message of hope. After all that stuff, I'm bringing you back. All right. So we need to look for that. Wow. This this is great. Can I try to restate those three then? First was notice uh, that the Old Testament is more willing to record warts and all. It's it's very honest, and it, it can give us some hope knowing, hey, our, my family's not perfect either. Uh, the second thing, I love this, a more symbol-oriented culture, and I've always known that there were symbols, but I love that you said symbolic action. I hadn't thought of that before. There are actions that are symbolic, not just words that describe things symbolically. Yeah, and that, that explains part of why often we, we, it seems like God is acting harshly, but this is something he has to yeah. do because, he's because that's the way they're expecting to learn. And he, yeah, he's going to teach them. Exactly right. Wow. Okay. And then third was, make sure you see the whole story and you will see more about God's love and mercy. Because you're right. I've heard people say, well, the Old Testament God is really harsh and mean, and he softens up in the New Testament. But you're saying not so if you look for the whole story. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that statement drives me more crazy than just about anything else, because what it means <laughs> is that they read some parts of the Old Testament, they didn't read some parts of the New Testament, right. and they selectively chose what they were going to focus on. So, they didn't read some uh, parts of the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they also didn't see the, the next part of the story, because the New Testament doesn't record it, but the Jews go through the biggest destruction in their history, right, yeah. at the end of the New Testament, 70, which Christ said 80. they were going to, yeah. So... But it's all the same thing. Then he brings them back, right? We just wow. have to see that same story everywhere. I'll throw in one more, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because you'll end up spending a lot of time on this. But it's to recognize the importance of initially what we'll call the New and Everlasting Covenant, but eventually the Abrahamic Covenant, right? The Abrahamic Covenant is the core central element, the, the thematic element of the entire Old Testament. And there are a lot of things that will make more sense when you recognize that God is is uh, keeping the, the covenant or humbling them so that they will start to keep again, and that you'll recognize a lot of, of imagery used, especially by the prophets, has to do, you just have to know the covenant well enough um, to, to recognize, oh, they're making a covenant reference because he's talking about them becoming more numerous or about protecting them. Oh, so Isaiah often isn't being literal. He's using a, a, a symbol that says, now we're keeping the covenant or now we're, we're not keeping the covenant. When I try to teach Isaiah, I feel like, how can you even understand the Book of Mormon without understanding the Abrahamic Covenant and and how critical that is? And you have an Isaiah commentary coming out pretty soon. Is that is that right? And which I can't wait to get. It's it's just barely coming out now, and it, it's a it's a verse by verse commentary. So it's got a guide, a section that kind of gives you some of these principles, but then verse by verse commentary. And I was shocked 
actually really, really, even though I was expecting to see it, I'd already written about the Abrahamic covenant, uh, but I was shocked at how often I was writing, well, this is Isaiah talking about the Abrahamic covenant. This is Isaiah. And I suddenly realized you're never going to get Isaiah or most of what the prophets are writing if you don't know the Abrahamic covenant fairly well. So uh, that's another great key for understanding uh, all the prophets, especially Isaiah, but any of the prophets, if you... uh, if you will just become at least passingly familiar with the Abrahamic Covenant, which should happen with Come Follow Me this year. You know, I've heard Dr. Robert L. Millett talk about, I think his words were, there's a lack of covenant consciousness. We we don't get the Abrahamic Covenant. And so I love to hear you talking about that. And because uh, that helps make sense of so many things in the Book of Mormon as well. Yeah. What What's the title yeah. of your book going to be? Uh, it's Learning to Love Isaiah, A Guide and Commentary. Yeah, and I think if anyone has been trying to overcome our lack of covenant consciousness, it's President Nelson, right? If, if there's someone who gets and talks about the covenant, that it's him. And you, you almost feel like uh, you get this sense that that's one of his underlying missions as a prophet is to help us understand how the, the covenant affects all of the other stuff we're doing. Mm-hmm. He's talked about the... The greatest work, when, when he was uh, set apart in what, June of 2018, the greatest work we can be involved in is gathering of Israel. It's all part of the, of the covenant. So, yeah, good point. He's passionate about it, and so yeah. is the Lord. And you'll see it, if, you, if you'll uh, recognize it, you'll see it in the scriptures. I've always thought, Kerry, that those of us who, who teach the gathering of Israel, we probably ought to make sure we teach the scattering, right? And that's the Old Testament's going to help us understand the scattering of Israel, uh, because if we don't understand it, then I, we're kind of, what are we gathering again? Why are we doing yeah. this? <laughs> well, and, uh, well, and how, what was the purpose? Right. So that's and, actually another little key that, that's worth bringing up briefly. I think as we, uh, you remember way back last year when we were doing the Doctrine and Covenants, we've really stressed, you know, understanding some of the historical context. We've got these big chapter headings or section headings, I guess, that tell us the historical context and the church provided all sorts of resources for that. And it really did help us understand the revelations better, right? Well, that's that's fairly recent history. We need that all the more to understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Um, and and it, it, it has some historical uh, books in it, but it's not history the way we think of history, by the way. They're teaching theology. History is the, uh, like fourth, fifth, tenth priority for them. They're trying to teach us religious principles, the, the authors of the Old Testament. But still, if we will learn a little bit of the history, it really, really helps us understand things. So learning that history of the scattering of Israel, it will help you understand the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon, the New Testament. I mean, it helps you understand everything, right? So hopefully uh, during this year, we also will take the time to to learn just a little bit of, of some of the historical things going on here. Yeah, And it's how you get that second part of the story that we were talking about, about seeing God's love. You get that in the history of it. Right. And I've also noticed, Carrie, in teaching in my New Testament classes, the better you understand the Old Testament, the better you're going to understand the New Testament. Um it's like watching the sequel without watching the original. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I can't tell you how many times in my Book of Mormon courses or my New Testament courses where someone asks a question, I say, okay, you're probably sick of me saying this by now, but if you take a class on the Old Testament, then you'll get this, right? So I'll do my best to get you there right now, but you'll understand it much better when you understand the Old Testament. And it's true for the Doctrine and Covenants as well, actually. Uh, you understand all other scriptural authors presuppose that you know and understand the Old Testament. Carrie, it's interesting. We're talking about the Old Testament, but today we're actually not even going to, in the lesson manual, we don't even open the Bible. We open two other books in the Pearl of Great Price, the book of Moses and the book of Abraham. Now, I know these are both Old Testament because I know Moses and Abraham lived in the Old Testament. Uh, but tell us, can you tell us wh- wh- where we got these and how they ended up in uh, the Pearl of Great Price? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to talk about those. So um, let's do the Book of Moses first. Uh, so in, in a way, we are in Genesis, and in a way, we're not in in the Book of Moses, uh, because the, the Book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first several chapters of the Old Testament. So what happens is just after he finishes, uh, after Joseph Smith finishes publishing the Book of Mormon in March of 1830, in June of 1830, 
he has this kind of uh, vision or revelation. We're not sure exactly what it is, um, but he has this this vision or revelation that he titles the the vision of Moses when he's caught up on an exceedingly high mount, um, and and that's Moses chapter one. And then he starts to work his way systematically through. Um, the Old Testament to begin with. Eventually, he'll stop and go to the New Testament and then come back to the Old Testament. But um, And we don't know if he's commanded to go through the Bible, and then he has Moses chapter 1, or that, you know, that vision, or if he has that, that, that vision or revelation, and then he's commanded to go through. So the rest of it comes uh, as he's systematically going through the Bible. Maybe Moses 1 is, is part of that, or, or the catalyst to it. We, we don't know. But um, he has this uh, revelation come to him, uh, and then it keeps coming to him. So Moses chapter 1 is received in June, uh, 2 through 3. And actually, I think we talked about this a little bit in our, our uh, Doctrine and Covenants Come Follow Me podcast because uh, it, it overlapped with the sections 27 and 28 and 29. Um, but uh, probably somewhere in September, he gets 2 through 3 and, or most of 3, and then kind of right after that, four and part of five, and it just keeps following that year. Um, but it has so much new material. It's not just little changes that, you know, you could foot into a, a footnote or an appendix. So much new material as Joseph Smith is is doing this first part of uh, Genesis that he publishes it separately in the newspapers, and eventually that that becomes part of the Pearl of Great Price as the Book of Moses. And so we really should just think of it that way because it's completely accurate to say the Book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first part of Genesis. Okay, and the reason it, it it's it's kind of standalone. The the it's interesting, uh, Carrie, with the with the Joseph Smith translation. We put some in the footnotes, we put some in the appendix, and we put some in the Pearl of Great Price. So it's kind of all over the place uh, in your in your standard works. Is if you're holding on to them, it's you gotta you gotta go looking a little bit for that Joseph Smith yeah. translation. There's kind of a long, complicated textual history behind that. But uh, yeah, the reason that we have it in the Pearl of Great Price is because Joseph published those parts in the church's newspapers. Okay, so tell us about the Book of Abraham now. All right, so the Book of Abraham we get in a different way, although the revelatory process may have been similar. We don't know a lot about that. Like we said, 1830 is when we get the Joseph Smith translation started, and, and they've worked on it pretty intensely for a couple of years. And as they've, in many ways, wrapped up that project— few years later in 1835, there's a fellow who comes to Kirtland uh, with some mummies and papyri that he's selling. A fascinating story behind how it gets there and so on and so on. But anyway, he, he's selling these and Joseph feels really impressed to, to get the papyri, that they have something on there that he needs. Uh, the, Michael Chandler, the fellow who has them, won't sell them uh, the mummies and papyri separately. So Joseph has to raise the money to buy all of them. And this is when they're like dead poor trying to build the temple, right? They'll, they're just about finishing the temple. They'll dedicate it uh, less than a year later. So it's hard to get that money, but it's so important that they do. And as Joseph translates the papyri, and there's a long, complicated history behind what is the revelatory process here? Is the text actually on the papyri or not? And so on. It's a, a kind of a long, big uh, story. We won't probably want to get into all the details now. But as Joseph is translating that papyri, or at least looking at the papyri and, and receiving revelation for a text that Abraham wrote, maybe that, that's another possible scenario. That might be a little bit like what happened with the, the book of Moses. But one way or the other, as he's working with the papyri through inspiration and revelation from God, he receives the text of a book that Abraham had written when Abraham was alive. Um, and that's the book of Abraham. So Joseph spends time translating that. Uh, eventually, seven years later, uh, when he's in Nauvoo, he'll publish that in the church's newspaper called The Times and Seasons. So similar to the Book of Moses, they, it gets published in the church's newspaper. That's how he's getting it out to the saints. Fantastic. Um, that word translate is such a fascinating word. You know, as I've, as I've studied in my, for my Book of Mormon classes, the translation of the Book of Mormon. Uh, John, you'll remember this from last year. That word translation can mean, yes, going from one language to another, but we talk about translated beings, right? And, and being translated, becoming more holy, becoming what God wants you to be right, becoming more like God. To me, that word translate can have so much more meaning than, oh, we're just taking it from one language to, to another. 
Yeah, if you look at the dictionaries from Joseph Smith's day, you'll see that it has a broader meaning than we typically assign to it. Dr. Muelstein, don't you have a book coming out about the book of Abraham? Uh, it's just coming out right now or, or next week. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's part of Deseret Books. Yeah, yeah, it has been uh, a busy little while. That's why I didn't get the 10 keys to understanding the Old Testament uh, written or something like that. But um, it's, uh, it's part of Deseret Books' Let's Talk About series, and this is Let's Talk About the Book of Abraham, where you can get a little bit more about you know the, the history behind how the papyri got to America and how Joseph Smith gets them and the translation process and the different theories about translation and the fragments we have today and the drawings and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's not super in-depth because it's a, a short book, but it's certainly more in-depth than what we just did, and I, I think covers the issues in a, I hope, in a good, understandable way. Oh, that's great. There, there's, uh, you know, a lot of people who, it can be a stumbling block. Now, wait, how do we get Abraham and what do we still have? Yeah. And what is the, what do those facsimiles actually say? So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. And that's, that's probably worth at least commenting on that uh, for, for many people, it is a stumbling block because there are a lot of people who are, are taking inaccurate stories or really simplistic stories about this process and throwing it out there and saying, look, this can't work. In every case, they're either withholding information or simplifying it in a ridiculous way. Um, and and that when people get the, the, the miss or simplified information, sometimes they struggle. When you get the full story, my experience is that when, when people get everything, that then it really strengthens their testimony and you really come to understand and appreciate Joseph Smith all the more. Uh, and, and so I think it's really worth uh, getting the real story instead of silly stuff. One of the things that I have just loved about this, uh, this whole experience doing this, uh, this podcast is to talk to people that really know, well-trained, scholarly, and faithful LDS scholars that can tell you, now listen, here's, here's the whole thing. And it's really blessed uh, my testimony, I think a lot of people. So I'm glad to hear a real Egyptologist come on here and say, listen, you're not getting the whole story. Let me give you the whole thing. So I'm, look, I'm looking forward to that. And that's the beauty of a covenant community, isn't it? Between, uh, no one knows uh, all this stuff, but between all of us, we can know a lot of stuff. Carrie, I, I would also add that I think for the people I've talked to with the book of Abraham has become a stumbling block. It's They come in with some bad assumptions about the translation process. Uh, and if you allow the the history and the text to correct your assumptions, you can actually have a, a wonderful experience, a faith-building experience. I agree. That's that's a lot of that misinformation is based on incorrect and faulty assumptions that are stated as if they're fact. Yeah, I kind of had, had approached it maybe maybe backwards, but but reading the text itself and just going, wow. And then it's more like, where did this come from? Because the text itself is so incredible that it's not something somebody invented. It's way too incredible. So that helps me just to look at the text itself and go, whoa, this is amazing stuff. And and that's what we'll do a little bit of in just a minute. But I couldn't agree more. I, one of the things that... Uh, I, I'm just going to be increasingly insistent on is that we don't let the discussions about the issues surrounding the book of Abraham eclipse the book of Abraham itself, that we need to get into the book of Abraham. Like, so for that 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 book, even though it's mostly about these issues, I, I just insist that I said, we're going to have the last chapter be about what does the book of Abraham teach us? I think it's the same thing with the Book of Mormon. If you'll get into the scriptures themselves, they speak for themselves, right? They'll the, the, the power, the the spiritual power, the Holy Ghost will bear witness. Just the complexity uh, of it and the the beauty of it uh, that's goes beyond Joseph Smith. It will it will testify, and you'll you'll know when you'll focus on the text rather than on all this other stuff. I don't care where it came from. This is a revelation. I, I don't know how it happened, how translation or pure revelation or papyrus, whatever. But it's clear this is uh, truth and revelation and powerful stuff. Amen and amen. I remember Elder Maxwell saying, don't chew on an old bone in the front yard when there's a feast inside. Uh, and that really, there's a feast inside the book mm. of Abraham. Yeah. Hey, can I give you a phrase of Elder Maxwell that I memorized? God is not interested in our retroactive adulation, but in the prevention of our prospective ruination. <laughs> wow. 
that is classic Maxwell. Yeah. yeah. It's like, There's, wait, there is what? no one like Maxwell. So this is, this is great. Let's, we, we mentioned before, we're going to talk about how does this end up in the Pearl of Great Price and, and why was it called that? And at first it was published, you said, in some newspapers. So how does it all yeah. end up in the Pearl of Great Price the way we have it now? So what happens is you have a whole bunch of different things. The, the, the way that the revelations are originally, most of the things Joseph Smith is teaching are originally distributed to the saints, besides the Book of Mormon that's a book, is that the church almost always has a newspaper, and sometimes they have two, one in Kirtland, one in Missouri, uh, and so on. And so they publish these things, and, and people collected them. So there was a, a fellow named Franklin Richards who collected the uh, newspaper publications that were the Book of Moses. Uh, he com- collected the newspaper publications that are about Abraham. He collected uh, the what we call the, the when Joseph Smith translated or published the Wentworth letter, and it had the Articles of Faith in it. Um, and uh, Joseph published uh, the story of his own first vision and so on. Uh, Elder, well, Franklin Richards is made an apostle, uh, and then he is sent to preside over the mission in England. And in England, they have their own newspaper. It's called the Millennial Star. And uh, so he's presiding in there, and he's uh, got all these things. He has a real problem, actually, in England, because uh, they're supposed to get everyone to migrate to uh, what will eventually become Utah, right? So uh, he keeps getting these converts, and just as they're getting seasoned in the gospel, they leave. And so he is trying to run a church with always new converts, right? And and that's tricky. So to, to help them um, know the doctrines that are new to and part of the restoration, he decides to put together a little booklet. So he uses the, the press, the Millennial Star Press, and he puts together a booklet with uh, and initially it has um, some of the revelations that will eventually be in the Doctrine and Covenants, but aren't yet, or that, that so, even a couple that are, but they don't have a Doctrine and Covenants in England yet. Um, so he, he publishes like sections of, or parts of section 20, which you can see if you've got a church you're trying to run, that's really important to know baptismal prayers, sacramental prayers, the different offices of the priesthood. So he's got different things like that in there, but he puts in the, the stuff from the book of Moses. It's not called the book of Moses yet. He, he's, he calls it that, but he puts in those revelations. He puts in the translations from Abraham. He puts the articles of faith, the Joseph Smith history, Joseph Smith, Matthew, uh, he even puts in a poem he really likes called truth that later will be taken out and put in the hymn book as oh say what is truth um, but he puts all that in just as a little booklet and and uh, he feels like this booklet is so important for the saints there that uh, he gives it a title from a parable in the New Testament where the Savior talks about if you found a pearl of great price you'd sell everything you had for it so he calls it the pearl of great price and and this he prints enough of those that the saints in England can have that to know these key doctrines that they need. Well, of course, they keep moving to Utah. So pretty soon you end up with a bunch of uh, saints in Utah that have this cool little booklet that the other saints don't have. And uh, so people get interested in that. And eventually the church asks um, Elder um, Orson Pratt to go through and edit it and make some sense of it. And he, he you know, takes out some of the stuff that's in the Doctrine and Covenants, takes the poem out, kind of organizes it a little bit more. And then in uh, 1880, they canonize it. In fact, I have to say this. I just love that it's actually George Q. Cannon who holds it up and proposes that we accept it as canon. There's just something wonderful about canon, <laughs> Elder Cannon doing that. Um, but uh, so that's that's how we get the Pearl of Great Price is it's uh, kind of the, the pared down version of uh, this booklet that was created to help the church run in England. That's so interesting. They're, they're taking this out saying, look – New revelations uh, and using it as part of of their their missionary discussions, I guess you could say. And yeah, it's a little bit missionary discussions, but even more so, it's intended for those who have already joined the church, so that they will know the doctrines of the church that are unique to the church. And and really, when you think about new stuff besides the Book of Mormon, which they have also, uh, I mean, the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses contain some really core and unique doctrines for us. That's interesting, Carrie, that people would show up in Utah, new members of the church from England, and they have scripture that the people in Utah are going, hey, where'd you get that? <laughs> I yeah, want that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And they're not calling it scripture yet. It will happen. But you're right. It is. It really is scripture. It's inspired by from God. So you're right. They're like, hey, that's kind of cool. So in fact, this even comes in to the story, uh, you know, like the William Martin Handcart companies and it's Elder Richards who overtakes them, if you're familiar with that story, and goes and, and, and meets Brigham Young. So when he's released from being the mission president, he's going faster, and he passes all these people who were his converts in in England, and he gets to Utah, and he tells Brigham Young, there's some people out there in the cold. We need to go get them. But they're part of the groups. There are several groups that do this, but they're part of the groups that are bringing this little pamphlet with them. So, so let's summarize then. The Pearl of Great Price today is the Book of Moses, yeah. Book of Abraham. Yes. The Articles of Faith. Yep. Joseph Smith History, which we did last year. And Joseph Smith Joseph Matthew. Smith Matthew. Yeah, which is the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24. So we'll do that next year. So we use the Pearl of Great Price, three of the four. Well, we actually use it when we do Book of Mormon as well, because it has the story of Moroni coming and uh, giving the place to Joseph and so on. So we actually use the Pearl of Great Price in every... Uh, come follow me year. Uh, it just it doesn't get a year of its own, but it's pretty integral to everything we do. Yeah, I've heard people say that Pearl of Great Price encompasses everything from the pre-mortal existence to the last days in Joseph Smith Matthew. Yeah. It's got it's got everything yeah. in it. <laughs> it as does. far as a time it period, does. it covers the whole uh, existence of the planet. You know. Yeah, that's that's actually very very correct. <laughs> Hey, Carrie, I think it's time we can uh, jump into our lesson now. Thank you for that incredible background information. Like this is this is crucial yeah. stuff. Yeah. Good, good, clean fun. The um, the lesson this week is on Moses one, Abraham three. So Abraham three is one of my favorite chapters of scripture anywhere. Um, there's just so much powerful stuff in it. And and sometimes it's a little bit confusing um, to people, but but maybe we can jump in and, and, and see if we can understand uh, some really key and core doctrines that I think are in Abraham chapter three. This is the Lord, again, teaching using symbols. Um, and there are two levels of things going on here. One, he's teaching Abraham and by extension us. But he's also telling Abraham that he's telling him these things so that he can go and teach them in Egypt. So if we were to look at, uh, at verse 15, uh, And the Lord said unto me, Abraham, I showed these things unto thee before you go into Egypt, that ye may declare all these words. Right. So this is, this is Abraham's passport into Egypt, as it were. Um, and, and the Lord is giving him a vision of the heavens or of astronomy, we could say. Um, and that's going to help um, Abraham in a couple of ways. One, the Egyptians, uh, we've talked about how Old Testament people are really symbol oriented. The Egyptians are even more so, right? I mean, this, these are the kings of symbols in the history of the world. Uh, they really are into symbolism and they're very familiar with keeping track of the stars and what's going on with the stars and with attaching meaning and stories to those things. So if you have someone down who can teach them new things, about astronomy. There were priests whose job it was to know astronomy, to keep track of the stars. This was their their priestly office, and they were some of the most important priests ever, right? So to, to have someone that can come down and teach them astronomy, automatically this is putting Abraham at, at the upper level of their their class and the, of people, right? He's, he's now co-equal with their, their highest and most important priests. And he's going to be able to teach them and they're going to listen to him about astronomy. And then they will naturally expect that there's some symbolism that they should learn from that. So this is if we we're going to use modern uh, modern missionary parlance, this is is both um, building on common ground and building a relationship of trust. Right. This is how uh, Abraham is able to get into the court and get them to listen to him and take him seriously. So with that in mind, let's look at what does God actually teach Abraham? It's a series of two visions, um, uh, and we see that often in the scriptures, actually. Prophets will have a, a vision and then another vision right after. So Lehi has that. Uh, Moses has that. We'll do that in a second in Moses 1. Abraham seems to have it here. Uh, and it starts out, if we look at, at verse 1, uh, it starts out using the Urim and Thummim. And, and through there, he sees a vision of the stars, and not just stars, but all sorts of celestial spheres and, and, and bodies and so on. And God teaches him something. He shows him um, that there, with all of these things, that, that there's an order. And there's always something that is above and below. If you have one thing, there's something that's above it, and there's something that's below it. 
Um, now, the way that he assigns that order is by it's it's in a way it's the rotation of the planet. Uh, it, it seems to be maybe a mixture of rotation and and orbit, but it's it's how long a day is, basically, right? Which is in a way the rotation of the planet. That may have to do with the size of the planet. It may have to do with the speed. It may you know the, the orbit can affect these things, all sorts of stuff. So we don't know how much any of those things are important. And in fact, I'll I'll say I'm not sure that God is even um, giving him a completely accurate view of astronomy from God's point of view. My guess is he's not, that God understands this on a level we're not capable of understanding. Um, and so he's just giving him something that works, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll just give you an example of that. Um, for what he's talking about is is you know the 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 slower the rotation and the longer the orbit the higher their nature right well that actually works really really well for the egyptians because the way the egyptians uh, conceived of the heavens is whatever encircled everything else is what controlled everything else now from their point of view the sun is encircling the the earth so the sun is greater than the earth and controls the earth, right? So it's the outside uh, kind of celestial body and the, and the way it circles everything else, it encircles it is the phrase they use, that is the highest and that controls things, right? So God is giving it to Abraham in a way that works really, really well for the Egyptians. But I'll just tell you my experience. When I try and explain it that way to my students, and I say, okay, uh, the the thing that's outside is the most important th- thing that controls things. And if I want to, and I try and draw these things like you know with different orbits and things. And if I put it as the outside thing being the most important, and and then I say, you know, so God is at the outside. It just doesn't work for us. We are. It's just so drilled into our minds that the thing that's at the center is what's most important, and it's what controls everything else, that it doesn't matter how often I explain, no, it's the outside, we're talking about the outside, it doesn't work for them. It doesn't make sense, it's not intuitive, they can't understand it. So instead, I've just taken a saying, okay, just so you know, for the Egyptians, it's this encircling thing, it's the outside thing, but when I draw it, I'm going to say, God is at the center, Kolob is at the center, and that's how I pictorially depict it, because it just doesn't work for them any other way. And I suspect that God's probably doing something like that for these guys. It's probably not Astronomy probably doesn't work even exactly this way. He's just saying, okay, this is what works for you guys. Let's go with this, right? We're not going to tell you something that's not going to make any sense to you. So we we get this idea that you have uh, different celestial bodies. And uh, and he tells us that if you have um, two bodies, one is above and one is below it, until you get to Kolob. And Kolob, because... Its rotation is so slow, a thousand years is a, is a day, uh, right? So one day for Kolob is a thousand years for us. It takes a thousand of our years for it to rotate around once. Um, because of that, it is the, the highest order uh, celestial sphere. But he tells us it's not just because of that. It's also because it's nearest to God. Right? Those are the two things. So let's, let's read a couple of verses just to kind of... Um, get that idea. Uh, If we were to read verse 6 in Abraham chapter 3, and the Lord said unto me, now Abraham, these two facts exist. Behold, thine eyes see it. It is given unto thee to know the times of reckoning and the set time. So that's this, you know, like the the orbiting and and the, the rotations and so on. Yea, the set time of the earth upon which thou standest, and the set time of the greater light, which is set to rule the day, that would be the sun, and the set time of the lesser light, which is set to rule the night. Now, And then, then he goes on to talk about these things, and, uh, and some of those work for us the way we understand astronomy, and some don't, and I don't think that's really important because, again, he's, he's using it in a way that makes sense to them. We get back to verse 8, and where these two facts, meaning two celestial spheres, exist, there shall be another fact above them. That is, there shall be another planet whose reckoning of time shall be longer still. And thus there shall be the reckoning of the time of one planet above another until thou come nigh unto Kolob, which Kolob is after the reckoning of the Lord's time, which Kolob is set nigh unto the throne of God to govern all those planets which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. So you see what he's saying. He's saying, anytime you see a celestial sphere, you can know there's something that is of a higher order than that and a lower order than that. That's true for everything except Kolob. 
Kolob sits at the top of this order. So that's the astronomy lesson. And then we get into a, a next, the next vision. Uh, so that's going to start with verse 11. Thus I, Abraham, talked with the Lord face to face. So this is not Yerm and Thummim. Or if it is Yerm and Thummim, it's somehow gotten to him to where he's talking face to face. Um, as one man talketh with another, and he told me of the works of his hand, or the works which his hands had made. And he said unto me, my son, my son. Now let's keep that phrase in mind. We're going to encounter this in Moses 1 as well. Think of all that is taught by saying that. Uh, just my child, my child is what God would say to any of us. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say I use frequently with my kids when I really want them to know we're, we're having a little interaction, but I want them to know how much I love them and of our deep connection. I'll just say, hey, my boy or hey, my girl. Uh, this or this or how are you doing or whatever else, right? But just including that phrase, it really does, it, it, it just automatically brings this tenderness to the interaction, right? Think of what that must do for Abraham or Moses when this is God, right? And, and we'll talk more about it in Moses 1, but I think it's a key phrase. Because it, instead of just um, using their name, he establishes yeah. a, a relationship by saying, my son. Yeah. Yeah, instead of just Abraham, let me say this, my son, my son. And I was thinking when yeah. you said that, I thought, oh, he does that to Moses too. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, I think we'll talk about it more there. There's a sense of ownership there, right? Like mine, mm, you're yeah. mine. Yeah. And, and remember, uh, if you remember back to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the key element of the Abrahamic covenant is relationship with God. Everything else in the Abrahamic covenant focuses on that. So uh, here with Abraham... Uh, that's a really uh, important aspect to see that that's what he's establishing is his relationship with him. And then he says, uh, behold, I will show you all these. And he put his hand upon mine eyes and I saw those things which his hands had made, which were many, and they multiplied before mine eyes and I could not see the end thereof. So you get this sense that whatever he's been seeing before, he's going to see more of it now. Again, we're going to see the same thing with Moses. There's some remarkable parallels here. But in the second vision, he uses what he just taught him about astronomy as, as an analogy or an allegory for what he really wants to teach him. And that's about beings. And he's going to use the phrase intelligences. Now, intelligences is used in the scriptures to mean a number of things. And it seems like even in this vision, it means more than one thing. Intelligences are, it's sometimes used both in the scriptures and the teachings of prophets to describe what, what we were before God gave us spirit bodies before it was something that existed even without God creating it. It's, it's, it's self-existent, but then God took whatever we were, and we'll call it an intelligence, but whatever it was and housed it in a spirit body in the same way that our spirit bodies are later housed in a physical body by our, our earthly parents, right? I mean, I don't know that it's exactly the same way, but the same idea. We don't know the process by which God creates our spirit bodies, but he takes whatever existed before and, and he gives it a, a, a spirit body. So we have this intelligence. Joseph Smith tells, teaches us it's an uncreated thing. It's always existed. Um, but he, that's when he becomes our father, when it, we receive this, this intelligence receives this spirit body, right? So it's going to be used that way, but it's also going to be used the way that we see it used in section 93, um, where intelligence is light and truth. Um, we're going to see it used both ways in, in this chapter. Um, and especially when he talks about uh, beings being more intelligent than others, I don't think he's saying more of whatever that uncreated element was. And I don't think he means what we would call intelligent quotient, right? An IQ. He seems in that case, when he's talking about some beings being more intelligent than others, to be talking about how much light and truth they have, right? And we'll look at, at how we can figure that out as we go along. So we get in a couple of verses there in like 13 and 14. He's going to talk about the stars again. And then in verse 15, he tells us, as we already read this, I'm telling you this so you can go down to Egypt. Now we have, let's stop and ask ourselves, was God telling Abraham all these things, was he sitting in heaven and saying, you know, Abraham, so many great things Abraham can do, but what I'm most worried about is he's kind of weak on astronomy, right? And, and probably not, right? Or I'm going to tell Abraham these things, go, you can go to the Egyptians. The Egyptians, they worshiped over a thousand gods, um, and they've got all sorts of these problems going on and so on. But my biggest concern is that they really don't get astronomy the way they should. 
right? Obviously not. God wants him to teach the gospel. This is the tool to enable him to teach the gospel. So here's where we're going to get into it. In verse 16, he reminds him, if there are two things that exist, one is above the other and Kolob is above all of them, right? And then in verse uh, 18, he's going to switch that to saying, this is really an analogy about spirits or intelligences. So verse 18, how be it that he made the greater star as also if there be two spirits and one shall be more intelligent than the other, yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. So this is the intelligence part, right? They existed before and they shall have no end. They shall exist after for they are no lam or eternal. So no lam is, uh, today we'd say olam, but Joseph Smith's Hebrew grammar said this is how you pronounce that word. So he put this gn on the front. Um, but anyway, this is the Hebrew word for eternal. Um, Now, 19 is probably the key to the whole thing. Verse 19. And the Lord said unto me, these two facts do exist. So remember, that's the same thing he said when he talked about these these celestial bodies, right? When two facts exist, one is above the other. Here he's saying it. These two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. Right. So you see what he's saying in the same way that if you look at the stars and there's always one above another, that's true of of spirit beings. There's always one that has more light and truth or more intelligent than another until you get to me. I possess all light and truth. Right. And this is what Moses will be able to go into to Pharaoh and say, let me teach you about astronomy. And then he can say, hey, Pharaoh, I know you think you're a, a semi-divine. I know you think you're, you're kind of a god, um, and I know you think that, okay, you've got several kings, like the king of Cush and kings of Mesopotamia, and the, some are more powerful than others, but I know you think you're more powerful than them. But just like there's something more powerful than the sun, there's something more powerful than you, and that is God, Jehovah. He is more intelligent, possessing more light and truth than everyone and everything else. Right. So in the end, what Abraham chapter three is really teaching us about is our relationship with God. Again, that's why I think it's so key that he starts out with my son. This whole thing is teaching us about our relationship with God and that God is above us. But the beautiful thing is it doesn't stop there. Right. It's he doesn't just say I'm above you. End of story. Right. Gary, I was going to say it sounds almost like a little MTC. Like, I'm going to teach you their oh, yeah. language so you can go teach them. All right. I'm going to teach you how they think, how they, right? almost like um, Ammon and uh, Lamoni, Lamoni. Right. Yeah. This idea of, of yeah. do you believe in God? I don't know what that is. Do you believe it? I believe in a great spirit. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, I can, good. let's, let's get some common ground. I understand where you're coming from. So I can, I can build from there. So I really like what you've done here. This is, this is yeah. fantastic. Little Abraham MTC here. Now, now you can go to <laughs> Egypt and teach them. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. And we miss out on that if we're not willing to kind of pay the price to work through this. What's going on with these Kokob and, and the Kolob and stuff and put ourselves in their mindset. Um, then we miss what the, the teaching tool God is using. So I, I think it's worth just kind of going through like we have to say, okay, what, what, how would they have understood it? Oh, now I see the teaching tool God is using. I'm getting what's going on in the MTC. Thank you for pointing that out. That verse 18, as also, I mean, I underlined that and put in my margin just now, Abraham, relate this astronomy lesson to differing spirits. He's like... You, that is great. That's like a pivot point there in verse 18. Now, let me... Absolutely. Everything I just told you, let's relate this. Let's put it this way. I don't think uh, this is the gospel according to Kerry, um, but based on scripture, so hopefully I'm reading scriptures correctly, I don't think this means that whoever studies the most, the fastest, and the hardest becomes <laughs> godly first. This isn't about studying. It's about becoming and as we become more godly, or let we could put it this way, well, we will put it this way in just a minute. If you act on the light and truth you have, it changes your nature, which allows you to become the kind of being that can receive more light and truth. And then you act on that and you can receive more light and truth. Now, let's also be very, very, very clear. None of us can act perfectly on the light and truth we have. So we need the atoning sacrifice of Christ to change our natures. 
right? So I'll do my best at acting on what I have. And then Christ will change my nature to be more like his. And that allows me to receive more light and truth. And then if I do my, give it my best shot. And if I'm sure that, that John's best shot is better than mine and probably Hank's is too. So um, I'm just teasing you, Hank. But anyway, uh, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced that you guys have fantastic best shots at acting on the light and truth you have. And some of us have mediocre best shots. And that doesn't matter. However good your best shot is, it's good enough. Then Christ changes your nature and you become more like him. And that allows you to be the kind of being that can receive more light and truth. And then you just keep going through that process again and again. It's a cycle, right? It's mm. a series of cycles. It, it's kind of reminding me of section 50 that which is of God is light and that receiveth light and continueth in God, you know, keep giving it your best shot, keep repenting, don't, then, then you'll receive more light. Well, let's, let's keep going if it's all right, because I think this is where we get into to all of this kind of ethereal teaching about um, one intelligence being more intelligent than the others and, and God putting it into some concrete terms uh, of, of the plan for us, right? So... Um, let's go into verse 22. Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. So when it says we're organized, I don't know this for sure, but I think that's the way God says, because organized is another word for created, right? So I think that's another way of saying, once I had housed these intelligences in spirit bodies, so I've organized them, I've put them in this kind of uh, organized state of being. I, that's, I don't know for sure, but I think that's what that's saying. So anyway, there are intelligences that are organized before the world was. So here we go with pre-mortality. In in general conference, if the book of Abraham is going to be cited, the most common reason is to talk about pre-mortality. Abrahamic covenant is the next most common reason, but most common reason is to talk about pre-mortality. Pre-mortality is one of the doctrines. What what we know about pre-mortality is one of the things that are unique about us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We know... Uh, not very much about premortality, but more than most others. And w- this is one of the key places. We know more about it from this chapter than just about any place else. And you'll see it's precious little, but still, it's so important. It's so key. So the idea is that there were intelligences that have been organized or put in spirit bodies, whichever way, before the world even existed. We were there with God before the world existed, right? And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. So even then, even in pre-mortality, there are some who are greater than others. I'm going to assume that's on the same principle. There are some who have more light and truth than others. It's not that they had a more innate intelligence or something like that. It's based on what did they do with the light and truth they had, right? So he says, among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them. And he said, these will I make my, or I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. We learned that Abraham was foreordained to be what and do what he was going to be and do in mortality. And I think some people get get confused with that because of the idea of predestination that was so uh, such a big thing and so important in Joseph Smith's day, right? And predestination means you don't have a choice in the matter. But foreordination does. So uh, there's an analogy I've found that really helps my students understand this. Um, I can say, okay, if you if you go through the temple, you're actually foreordained to be exalted. Right. It, it, that's that's part of the blessings promised you. You go through the temple, you're foreordained for exaltation. But we all know that not everybody who goes through the temple will be exalted because not everyone will actually do the things that they said they would do when they were foreordained to that. And I would suppose it worked the same way in pre-mortality. If we were foreordained according to covenants and agreements that we made, and if we don't live up to our part, then the foreordination is not going to happen. If we do, then it will. Right, so I, I, that's that's something at least that can make sense to my brain uh, to help me understand foreordination a little bit better. In a way, I think we're reading in uh, Abraham three and Moses one. We're kind of reading about uh, Abraham and Moses getting their patriarchal blessing from God, which is not a. I mean, I like patriarchs a lot, but God's even more cool. Carrie, I was just going to say one, maybe make one quick comment on how limited 
the Bible is on a pre-mortal life and how crucial restoration scripture is to our understanding that we made these, that we made a choice to come here, right? Without, without, without the restoration scripture, the pre-mortal life is almost, we have a tiny view into it in maybe five verses in John and that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Bible has very, very little, um, Dana Pike's actually written a few things on this, um, but um, in the Old Testament, we really get one verse about Jeremiah, uh, where God says he, he knew him before he formed him in the belly. Um, you get, uh, yeah, in John, you have God talking about uh, before the world was created. And you get uh, a couple of things, Paul talking about, um, you know, Israel being based on uh, the people who were, how many people are going to come down and so on. And, and he's, he's kind of hinting at, but doesn't give you anything really about And, and maybe Job, the sons of God shouted for joy, but... Yeah, it's 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 a hint. It it's a hint at best, you know. Yeah, yeah. This we learn more in these couple of verses, and including the ones that we'll read in, in uh, following this. But we learn more about premortality here than all of of uh, the biblical scripture put together. And I'm not dissing the Bible, right? I'm just saying hooray for the restoration. But let's let's keep going uh, because this is when we get even more key information about premortality. At verse 24, and there stood one among them that was like unto God, and he said unto those who were with him, and, and this is going to be very clearly Christ, right? So this tells us that already Christ was someone special, right? He has already acted on the light and truth he has so much that he is similar to God, uh, right? He, he's advanced uh, so much that we're already like, well, that one's like God. Right. Anyway, and he said unto those who were with him, we will go down for there is space there and we will take of these materials. So he's talking about creation and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Now, let's let's just take a break there. He's not proving us as because God didn't know. Right. It's it's the process, this process we've been talking about. We need to give them the opportunity to receive light and truth and see what they do with it. Right. And and we get that if we keep reading. Um, so verse 25 or 26, and they who keep their first estate shall be added upon. And they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. So this goes back to this, this principle with light and truth that we find taught in one way or another in tons of places in the scriptures. And that's this. If you receive the light and truth you have, if you act on it and receive it, that's really what it means to receive it, then you'll get more. And if you don't receive it, then you'll lose what you have. You know, there's not a static light and truth. There's no status quo for maintaining the light and truth you have. You're either getting more or you're losing what you have. Those are your two options, right? And that's just the nature of, of I guess, our beings and their ability to be receptacles that receive and hold light and truth. In any case, um, so those who, who don't keep it will not have glory added in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. Now listen to this next part. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Now, let's think about that. This is this idea that we can keep receiving light and truth until we receive a fullness of light and truth. But that verse, in a way, reshapes the way we understand all of this stuff about astronomy and intelligences. Because if you didn't have this second part, if you just had up through verse 19, you could feel like, okay, I have this much intelligence, someone else has more, someone else has more, God has the most, and we're stuck there. That's where it is. But this is telling us no, right? And, and, and we have places in scriptures where glory is equated with light and truth. So it's telling us no, you can have light and truth, which will equal glory, added upon you forever. In other words, God is telling us we can jump orbits. Right. Yes, you may be a planet that's orbiting here, but you can jump orbits and get closer and closer and closer to God until you are nigh unto God on Kolob. Right. That's that's what this is telling us, that we're not static in our light and truth. We're not static in our, our orbits. Um, we're ready to, to move up. God is inviting us to be with him where he is. You can jump orbits. I love it. Oh, yeah. Come on. There's the invitation. Now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, this idea, um, it's so encouraging. It's so empowering. It's uh, it's there doesn't have to be a dead end anyway. And um, 
But I, I'm st- stuck on verse 25. I think that's one of the greatest, uh, like, purpose of life type things ever. Uh, we get to choose to follow. It doesn't mean that God doesn't know what we're going to do. But here's a chance where we can know. It reminds me of that, uh, that talk we had in this last general conference, the parable of the slope, right? The slope and the intercept. This idea that it doesn't matter where you start. I don't think God cares how much light and truth you have when you start. You can be 7 million orbits away from him or 10 orbits away from him. That doesn't matter. The question is, what are you doing with the light and truth you oh, have? So important. Right? So, so don't feel bad that President Nelson is more capable than you are. Um, and uh, don't feel too great that you're more capable than I am, right? The, the question is, what are you doing with the light and truth you have? Even if you have a crash, get back in and drive again. Get back on the horse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was just, I was going to add one thing about um, Peter. I just love that idea that Peter recovers, you know, from maybe a, a, a bad moment in life. He recovers and turns around, becomes a mighty voice. So uh, Alma, the younger Paul, this idea of you can, you can recover from a, a crash if we're taking on our driver's ed analogy. Hank, thank you. And I love how the Lord didn't treat Peter like the three denial guy. He he treated Peter as he knew he would be, you know, later, I, I think. And I, I love that he he treated Peter based on his potential. I'll say it that way. Yeah. And I think he treats all of us that way yeah. all the time. Well, these next two verses, I think, are actually a perfect segue to Moses chapter one. This is fantastic stuff about premortality that we will see echoed in Moses chapter one, uh, where we learn about Christ and Satan. Right, and we really learn about them in, in Moses 1. But verse 27, And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered and said, and one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate. Right, so this is the first person who didn't act on the light and truth they have and lost it uh, and, and did it in such a way that he's not going to get it back. Right, um, but the, but it also teaches us uh, Christ. In fact, we find um, Abraham using this phrase elsewhere. Uh, we find the great prophets using this. This uh, here am I. The, the Hebrew phrase is Hineni, which r- really does mean like, see me here. Here I am. Here I'm. Behold me. I was going to say this is the the call of Isaiah. Right? Doesn't he say the right. same thing? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we see it several places. So, but the idea is that when the Lord says, I need someone, you just say, do you, here I am. Do you see me? I'm, I'm right here and I'm ready. Whatever you're asking, I'm ready. And none of us, I think, including at this point Christ, fully understands all that that will entail. Uh, I mean, if I read the accounts in Gethsemane correctly, I don't think Christ understood until he was suffering it in Gethsemane, the depth of what he was going to go through. But it doesn't matter whether we fully understand it. And let's be clear, none of us really understand what we're getting into when we sign up for marriage or for parenthood, because it's harder and better than we would have thought, right? But you don't have the faintest clue when you, you sign up for it. You just say, okay, <laughs> I believe this is going to work out. Let's do this. And, and that's the attitude we need to have for everything God asks of us. Um, sorry for this note of humor, but uh, I think it's Elder Bruce C. Hafen that in one of his books, he talked about one of his daughters saying, yay, I'm engaged, I'm getting married, I'm at the end of my troubles. <laughs> yeah. Sister Hafen said, yeah, which end? <laughs> yeah, yep, that's right, yeah. Yep. So that, that's that uh, most of my problems I either married or gave birth to, I heard someone say. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are, all of this, including mortality, is both worse and better than we thought it would be, right? Or more difficult, maybe not worse, but more difficult than we thought it would be. And that's the reason that it ends up being better than we thought Mm -hmm. it would be. God is more interested in our growth than he is in our comfort. Please join us for part two of this podcast.